Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome in to episode number eight of The Sitch with Graham Mitchell. Now, I don't know if you guys can tell from my voice. Maybe it sounds a little different. That's because I'm in a new room, because I'm in a new apartment. Yes, I'm in a brand new spot. You can't tell because I've got the classic green screen behind me. By the way, drop a comment. Let me know if you like this green screen or if you actually want to see what I'm working with because I got a nice little background behind me. Took some effort. I had to build some shelves. Well, not really build them. I didn't I didn't go to Home Depot and pick up the plywood myself, but I installed them. I assembled them. Got some pretty cool knickknacks on there, some from my athletic career, some from just being a fan of sports, and some stuff that I overnighted on Amazon because what else are you going to do when you move into a new apartment and you need decorations? But you didn't come here for interior decorating tips. You can always download Pinterest if that's what you're interested in. You came here for sports news, betting picks, headlines, all that sorts of stuff. And guess what? We're starting off with March Madness because what else are we going to start off with? The Sweet 16 is finally here. We made it through the opening weekend of college basketball and it was electric. Purdue, the number one seed, falls to Fairleigh Dickinson University in the first round. That is the second time that a number one seed has lost to a 16 seed in the opening round. Zach Eady went for 21 points and 15 rebounds, but he only took one shot in the final 13 minutes and 47 seconds. Absolute disaster out of those guys. And then Arkansas beats Kansas, or as I like to say, the battle for Kansas between Kansas and Arkansas. I had Arkansas winning that game, and they ultimately did, and they are going to be one of the teams that we're talking about in this Sweet 16 preview. Very good game. Thought it was very competitive. And people saying Kansas didn't deserve to lose. Get a hold of yourself. Arkansas outplayed them from start to finish. They were more intense. They had more emotion, and they were hitting their foul shots when they needed to. Credit to those guys. It's been a really fun tournament so far. Now, as as much as there have been the, the Fairleigh Dickinson's winning and the Princeton beating Arizona, there haven't been – a ton of upsets. We've sort of sacrificed the volume of upsets for the magnitude of the upsets with, again, the 16 and the 15 winning in the first round. Hey, that's okay. I'm all here for it. March Madness, as unpredictable as ever, and I absolutely love it. But let me do my best. Let me try my hand at predicting it in the Sweet 16. And if you pull up your bracket from wherever you get it from, CBS, ESPN, wherever, we're going to start at the top left, which I believe is the south region. We're going to go down, work our way across to the top right-hand side, and then go down to the bottom. So we are going to start with number one seed, Alabama, facing number five seed, SDSU, that's San Diego State University. Now, Alabama was second in the list of favorites to win the tournament going into March Madness, but they've now moved up to one, number one on most sports books, meaning they are the favorite to win it all. And I can understand why, because Houston, which was the pre-tournament favorite, has had its share of issues, which we're going to touch on later. But Alabama, even though they won both of their games in this tournament by over 20 points, they do have some question marks. Brandon Miller, who was a contender for player of the year, we know Zach Eady's going to win it, but Brandon Miller has been awesome. He's given you 20 points a game. He's shooting 40% from three. In this tournament, though, he was blanked in the opening game, didn't score a point. In the second game, he got 19, but it took him 17 shots to get there, which is definitely not the efficiency you're looking for. He only made five field goals. He's shooting 22% from the field and 22% from three so far. Now, I was reading some... NBA scout, some analysts, some, some reports on what Brandon Miller's profile is looking at at the NBA draft. And I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that he doesn't deserve to be a top two, top three pick. Well, not top two, because you got Scoot and you got Wimbanyama. So let's go with let's go with top five, just, just to be sure. But he's, he deserves to be a top five pick. The kid's awesome. 
But one of the things that I was noticing is that they were saying they were impressed with how well he's been able to hold up with all of the controversy and uncertainty going on off the court and how he hasn't let it affect his play and how that could mean something going up into the NBA where the stakes are raised and you know everything is so much more important. That was true in the regular season and in the conference tournament, but he's not been good in March Madness. I mean, you'll take 19 points, but getting 17 shots, taking 17 shots to get there, you're not going to do it. And dropping a donut in the opening round against a 16 seed, that's definitely not what you want to see. And here's the thing. San Diego State, they don't do anything exceptionally well, but they do pretty much everything either a good at worst. They are good at pretty much every area of the game to great. And again, nothing exceptional. Nothing that you're going to find, oh, they're number one in the nation in this category. But they rank well pretty much across the board. And one of those strengths is physicality. They can get up into their opponents. They can bother them. And if you're Brandon Miller and you've been struggling to find your shot and find your rhythm in this tournament, what you don't want to feel is multiple guys, people getting switched on to you, and they're coming right up in your grill. They're getting right up inside pressing hard, trying to close off the cutting lanes. And if you get the ball in the perimeter, they're closing out hard. They're making you become a facilitator and not a scorer. It's a recipe for not disaster, but for struggle. Now, I am still taking Alabama to win this game. But the last time I checked, the spread was seven and a half points. And I would absolutely be taking the points with SDSU. I think that's far too many. I could see this easily being a three or four point game. Alabama is the better team, so I'm going to ride with them. But Alabama also lives and dies by the three. Again, your best player, who is also one of their best three-point shooters, over 40%, is struggling. SDSU makes it hard for him. That has a ripple effect. It makes it hard for the rest of the team because they don't have their star. They don't have their guy out there leading them to victory. I think this is a very close game. I think we're looking at something like a 68 to 65. Alabama wins, but just by a narrow margin. The next game on that side of the bracket, or in that quadrant of the bracket, I should say, Creighton versus Princeton. And now this one is especially interesting to me because Creighton is honestly a national championship contender. And I haven't heard one person say that. You can look at their number six seed and think, okay, they're never gonna, they're never gonna be they're gonna be a good early round team, and then that's it. You can look at the fact they have 12 losses this season and say, how the heck is a team with 12 losses gonna win the national championship when you've got to win how many games is it? 64, 32, 16, 8, 4. When you've got to win six games in a row. Sorry, had to count out loud there. You've got to win six games in a row, but you have 12 losses in the regular season. That's not gonna happen. Here's a very interesting fact. And Tanner Kern and I were discussing this. Um, if you don't know Tanner, go check him out on Instagram, on Twitter. It's at Tanner Kern, uh, maybe at Tanner Kern underscore on Twitter, and then at Tanner Kern on TikTok. Post a bunch of betting content. Also, we co-host a podcast together called Ride the Line by WSN. You can check that out on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. But anyway, one of the things we were discussing is that in the last 20 years, Every national champion has ranked top 40 in offense on Ken Palm and top 22 in defense on Ken Palm. Those Creighton Blue Jays, man, they are 12th overall in the net. They're 23rd on offense and they're 12th on defense. They are one of the six teams, I believe it's six, that live up to that standard of top 40 offense, top 22 defense. And they're a good team. They're battle-tested. They came from a very busy, very hectic Big East that produced some great programs. And maybe Marquette didn't make the deep run everybody wanted to see. Obviously, Michigan State took them out. But Marquette was a phenomenal team. 
Providence was a very good team. Sure, they lost in the first round to Kentucky, but there's no shame in that when Shibway is getting 25 rebounds. Look at the other teams that are up there. Xavier, one of the best offenses in the nation. They're still, they're still pumping. They're a third seed. They've got an important matchup coming up. Very good teams coming out of that Big East. So, again, you can look at their record and say it's bad, but all it says to me is that they have those big games under their belt. And their stars, Nemhard and Kalkbrenner, they're already performing. Kalkbrenner dropped 31 points in the opening round. And guess what? Nemhard scores 30 on just 13 shots in the second round. This is exactly what you want to see. They are so well balanced across the board. By the way, one Big East team that I omitted on purpose, UConn, they are also very well balanced, and I like them a lot. But they're coming up towards the end of this list, so I don't want to talk about them too much. But Creighton, very well balanced. They can shoot. They can play make. They can defend. They can rebound. They can take it inside. They can do all sorts of stuff, and they're a very good team that, again, people aren't really talking about. Now, Princeton has been good in this tournament. I mean, you can't upset the number two seed if you don't play a good game. But only one Princeton player scored double-digit points last game. And again, it's Princeton. There's going to be a regression to the mean at some point. They're the 15 seed for a reason. If Creighton wins this game, let's just hypothetically, let's zoom out here. We know that teams gather momentum quickly in March Madness, right? So that's why, that's why Princeton also is in for a tough time. Because they won that first game against Arizona. And then all of a sudden, they're playing just 48 hours later. They're still riding high. They've still got all the momentum. They're feeling good about themselves. Now they've had to go home and wait four or five days, and then they're going to get back on the court. So that momentum you build up, that those good feelings, those emotions, they're largely going to be gone. So that's why underdogs do well in weekend spurts. you gotta, you got to hope that it's just a weekend-to-weekend thing. And the really the Cinderella teams, those are the ones who can extend the run. But really, you're looking at teams, you know, if it's a 16 to 12, let's say, can they get past the opening weekend? And then if it's like a a 12 to a 7, it's like, can they get past the second weekend? Again, it's those weekends. You got to look at them in increments. Creighton, they beat Princeton. They pick up the momentum. They're back on the court 48 hours later. If they play SDSU, they match up well against them because, again, SDSU doesn't do anything truly exceptional. Creighton does. They can do a lot of different stuff. And Nemhard, I'm a huge fan of. Worst comes to worst, you put him in isolation, and he's going to give you at least 20 points just off the strength of his playmaking ability. And if you play Alabama, if it's a close game like I'm anticipating, if Brandon Miller is still struggling, that's the perfect time to pounce on them. They're vulnerable. So is it is it feasible that Creighton wins this game and uses it as a launching pad to get into the Final Four? Absolutely. These Creighton Blue Jays are for real, and they are here to make a run. And I'm not going to be the one to overlook them. Going further down on that left-hand side of the bracket, FAU versus Tennessee. Here's the one thing I will say about FAU. They are 33-3 and this season. Yes, I know. They did not play the toughest schedule in the world. They're not from the best conference in the world. In fact, it's one of the worst in Division I. But guess what? They played 36 games and they won 33 of them. There is something to be said that you form winning habits. Again, you get morale. You have a good team spirit. And sure, you just beat FDU. Is that the most impressive win in the world? Of course it's not. They're a 16 seed. But it was a team that had something to play for. And FDU, I keep trying to say FDSU, like it's SDSU. FDU plays a really good brand of basketball. If you watch that game or either of the games they played, you, you know, as a basketball purist, that is what the game of basketball is supposed to look like. Now, they're the shortest team in America 
and they don't have a ton of talent. So they ultimately lost just their second game into March Madness. But the way they were playing basketball is how it's supposed to be done. So that was another good win for FAU. They keep their good habits up. They go into this matchup against Tennessee, and I think they could keep it close, let's say in the neighborhood of five to ten points for most of the game. But I think by the end of the game, the physicality, the defense that Tennessee possesses, I think it's going to wear down on them, and they're going to be able to pull out about a 10 to 12-point win. Maybe they pick up some free throws at the end to help boost the lineup. Um, yeah, I'm looking for Santiago Vescovi. Sorry, completely, completely lost my train of thought there. Santiago Vescovi. Um, he's, he hasn't been his best in this tournament, but I think it's going to be a good game for him to step up because there isn't a ton of pressure when you're playing FAU and you really want him to get going before you move on into the later matches. Tennessee's defense also, by the way, I can't speak highly of it enough, held their opponents to 52 and 55 points in the tournament so far. If you're FAU, you know, winning is great. Like I said earlier, it's all you could ask for, but at some point, you're going to have to score a lot of points to beat these guys, and I think I think Tennessee is just too defensively strong to allow that to happen. The game on the bottom side of the left-hand side of the bracket, Kansas State versus Michigan State. We know one state is moving on here. Is it going to be the Spartans and Izzo? Is it going to be the Wildcats who are looking to make their deepest run in, tournament, in program history? I'm liking the Wildcats, to be honest. I like the way that Kansas State – I loved more than anything the resiliency that they showed against Kentucky. And Shibway was just dominating them. Granted, some of their other stars, top and namely, could not get anything going on offense. But Kentucky was still getting out in transition. They were swallowing up all the loose balls. They were doing, they were just making winning plays. Honestly, that's all it was. But every time it looked like they were pulling away, or every time they were beating on the door, Marquise Noel. Or David Gasson was making impact plays on the interior. They had guys coming through in the huge moments. Noel was obviously the standout. He had 27 points, 9 assists. He had a look-away alley-oop. He had a crazy step-back three. I mean, that guy was all over the place. For someone to be 5'8 and to totally, totally dominate a much bigger and more athletic Kentucky team like that, awesome to see. And awesome to have in the back of your mind knowing forward. That's not only going to inspire and raise his level of play, his teammates are going to be able to look at him and say, sure, we knew what you were doing in the regular season. You know, we knew you were a dog beforehand, but you're doing it in the biggest moments and the biggest stage in the sport of college basketball. You go out there and you drag your team to victory. I think these guys are in good shape moving forward, and I like how they match up with Michigan State. The one concern that you have to have if you are a Wildcats fan is that they don't have a dominating interior presence, a dominating big man. And their interior defense is not bad. Their rebounding numbers are not bad, but it's the she-boy sort of problem. When you go up somebody like that, if, if somehow this ends up being the, the championship game where it's UConn versus Kansas State and Adama Sonogo, you don't have somebody you can just stick on him and say, yeah, you got him. You've got a game plan for him. You're going to have to double. You're going to have to crash. You're going to have to leave guys open on the perimeter, all sorts of that stuff. They don't have to worry about that with Michigan State. Michigan State shoots the eighth best three-point percentage in America, and so they're going to be standing outside on the perimeter. Their leading rebounder is Joey Hauser. He's giving you eight rebounds a game, but he's not a rebounding player. Again, he's not a Sonogo. He's not a Shibway, and he doesn't have to be someone of that ilk but he's not your traditional big man. He's a forward. He's a guy who wants to shoot threes, and he just happens to run inside and get some rebounds because of his length and also because Michigan State shoots so many threes that there are longer rebounds. You can absolutely account for that if you're the Wildcats, especially with the length you have. Outside of Noel, you've got very versatile players that can go in there and 
and you, they can defend, they can rebound with this Michigan State team. And one really, really important stat for Kansas State is they were one of the best teams in America at defending the three-point shot. They allowed opponents to shoot just 29.7%. Michigan State is making nearly 40% of their threes. So if Kansas State can carry that into this game, all you've got to do is hold them to, let's say, 35% or less. You set yourself up for success in this game. I like Kansas State to win this one. I'm going to go somewhere around five or six points, which I believe would cover the spread, although I am sort of pulling that out of thin air because I didn't look at the spread for this game. If I had to guess, I would say it's about two points, and I believe Michigan State is favored. So what am I even talking about? I'm taking Kansas State straight up on the money line. That's what I'm doing, and that's the left-hand side of the bracket. So that means that my my Elite Eight would be Alabama, Alabama, Creighton, uh, Kansas State, and Tennessee. That's my Elite Eight on the left-hand side. Now let's move on over to the right. Number one seed, Houston, who I mentioned earlier, they were the pre-tournament favorites. They're taking on the Miami Hurricanes. And the hipster's pick in this one is to take Miami. And I think a lot of people are going to be on that. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad play because I think you look at this Miami team and they have a top two seed potential. They definitely have final four potential, at least on offense. Their defense, that's where it gets a little wonky because they're very much like a light switch. You flick them on, you flick them off. There's no in between. There's there's no resting middle point. If, if they're resting, it's got to be on or it's got to be off. Houston, here's why I like them in this game. I know that their stars are injured. I know Marcus Sasser has a thigh problem. I know Jamal Sheed has a knee problem. That scares me. It absolutely does. But Houston is one of the most resilient, fiery, feisty teams in America. What do you think of when you think of Houston? You think of incredible lockdown defense, crashing the glass, relentless energy. They haven't necessarily shown that in this tournament. And the fact that they've been behind in both of the games they've played already, including the opening round against a 16 seed, they were down 10 points to number nine Auburn at halftime in the round of 32. And obviously they come back and win the second half 50 to 23 to book their ticket in the Sweet 16. But because they've been down, because people are starting to count them out, I think this is a perfect opportunity for them to go in and remind everybody what they're made of. Keep in mind, Houston is not used to being a number one seed. They're not used to being number one in America in the national pool. They're not used to being a tournament favorite. There's There are teams that, even if they're great, outstanding teams, they're just not used to being in that position of the hunted instead of the hunter. I think they're the hunter now again. Like I said, I think the hipsters, I think the trendy thing is to go with Miami in this game. So I think Houston's going to go in there. I think they're going to play outstanding defense all night long. Here's the one thing I will say for Miami. Miami can make difficult shots when they're when they're having their game. Isaiah Wong and Nigel Pack especially. Those are the crafty guys that you got to watch. If they are making hard shots, Houston will lose. Houston doesn't have the offense to go back at them. Their defense is outstanding, but Miami's individual shot making is outstanding at times. At other times, they are just terrible on offense. They all play hero ball. None of them can hit shots. I mean, they're billing out, they're depending on Nigel Pack to bail them out against Drake. And that's he dragged them. They should not have made it out of the first round. And somehow they did, almost purely because of Pack. If it's one of those games, that means they're not going to be playing defense either. And it means they're just going to get swamped. One player that I am looking at, especially, I mentioned Pack, I mentioned Walm, who has not had his best stuff in this tournament, Jordan Miller. Jordan Miller is second on Miami in points and rebounds and maybe assists, although that one could be wrong. But I know he's second in points and rebounds, and he's their best defender, and he's very versatile. 
He's about a six 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 seven wing with a seven foot wingspan. He can take your five. He can switch onto the five. He can switch onto the one. He can do it all. But he has looked so disinterested in this tournament. And I'm not trying to call him to question his character because obviously I think about it. He cares about the game of basketball. He was awesome when Miami made that run to the Elite Eight last year. But I need him to take that out of himself and let everybody else see it. That's how Miami's going to win this game. He can't just he can't be reserved and within himself trying to do his job. He needs to go out there. He needs to show everybody this is why we made it to the Elite Eight and this is why we're getting back there again this year. And it's because of me. And it's also because of his teammates, sure. But it's got to be because of him as well. He's got to go out there. He's got to get at least seven, eight rebounds. He's got to come up with three or four turnovers. He's got to play lockdown defense, and he's got to score. He, he hasn't looked interested in scoring the ball, and he ended up with 15, I want to say, against Indiana. A ton of that came in the second half, barely scored in the first game. This is a guy who was averaging 15 as, what, the third or fourth option on the offense during the regular season? He's got to be awesome. And if he is, Miami will win that game, like I said. But I'm going to go with Houston. I trust them more than I trust Miami. The Hurricanes are just too inconsistent for my liking. Xavier versus Texas. This one is very interesting because Xavier scores a ton of points. Six players scored in double digits in their last game against Pitt, which they ultimately won by double digits. Texas, on the other hand, though, I think they have the better individual players, even if it is a little bit close. I love Timmy Allen, and I love Marcus Carr especially. And then Disu. Disu comes up with 28 points last game when those two don't have their best stuff. Again, it goes back to grit. It goes back to toughness. They have it. They don't like losing games. That's what it comes down to. Now, they were only 7-6 and six against top 25 teams during the – let me start over there. They were only 7-6 and six versus top 25 teams in the regular season, but all that tells me is that they have a bunch of experience. A lot of those ranked wins came at the end of the season. They knocked off Kansas back-to-back times. They won the conference tournament. This is a team that you don't want to doubt when the money is on the table. And Xavier, I do want to say also, I said Texas was 7-6 and six against ranked teams. Xavier was 6-5. and five. So both teams were one game over 500 against ranked teams. I think that you know that it's going to be a close matchup. And one thing that I think is going to be especially pivotal in this is Texas is top 50 in the nation in free throw percentage. They make about 75% of their shots. Xavier, they are over 150 spots behind Texas. They make less than 71% of their free throws. Or excuse me, just over 71% of their free throws. So it rounds down to 71%. Now that might not seem like much, but guess what? The line in this game is four and a half points. That's four percentage points difference and free throws right there. We know free throws are going to be shot at the end of the game. You absolutely want the team that makes more free throws. For that reason, I'm going with Texas in this game to move on. Going down to the bottom right quadrant of our bracket, Arkansas versus UConn. And I want to shout out Tanner Kern again. Uh, we do the podcast for called Ride the Line for WSN. You guys check that out wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can check him out on social media at Tanner Kern everywhere except for Twitter. That's at Tanner Kern underscore. A great stat that he gave me, and he made a video about this, is that in UConn's last five Sweet 16 appearances, it's made the Elite Eight every time. It's made four Final Fours. And it's made three national championships and won those national championships. How's that for a stat? So if you look at precedent, they're practically, well, not even practically, they are guaranteed to get out of this round. Now, nothing in sports betting and nothing in sports is a guarantee. But I absolutely love UConn in this spot. Adama Sanogo in the tournament, he's averaging 26 points, 
10 and a half rebounds, 73% from the field. And he's playing great defense too. This UConn team, they are so good in every aspect of the game. And one thing that I love about them, they are number one in offensive rebounding. Second chance points in the tournament are crucial. There are key stats that I love to look at in the tournament. Does a team make its free throws and does it come up with second chance points? Three-point percentage, also important, but it can be misleading, misleading at certain times because a team like Alabama live and die by the three. They have one cold night, tournament's over. So you want a team that's good at threes, but they don't necessarily rely on it. UConn, I think that they're just, I think they have the best value of all the teams left in this competition that you can get them at nine to one or plus 900 odds. I've already put a bet on that and I would, I would not encourage, but if you came up to me and asked me which team has the most value in this, in March Madness, I would say it's gotta be UConn. Arkansas, I'm also a little concerned about them because I think there could be a bit of an emotional hangover. Again, going back to the weekend, the weekend thing, they come up with a win in the first round and then they knock off the number one seed in the second game. They win by one point. The coach is ripping his shirt off and celebrating with his players, which is awesome. I got nothing against that. I think that's cool. I'm not somebody saying, you know, where's the show? Where's the sportsmanship or anything like that? What I am saying is that you put so much effort and emotion into the celebration. Did that maybe rub off on your team as sort of a we've hit the peak, we've hit the victory, we've gotten further than anybody expected us to? I think it's definitely possible. And in a game like this, UConn is just straight up better than Arkansas. There's, there's really no argument around it. So if you are Arkansas, you need that emotion. You need the effort. You need to make the hustle plays. You need stuff like that. Do they have it deep inside them? I'm just not sure. I love UConn in the spot. I'm going to be hammering them to win this game. Going into the last game, though, I'm not going to be hammering either one of these teams because I think this is going to be a super close game. I'm talking about Gonzaga versus UCLA. Now, if UCLA was fully healthy, I would be taking them the win. But David Singleton, Adam Bona, they're both beat up. They both are maybe expected to play. Reports are that they were walking to the team bus and Bona didn't have anything on his shoulder and Singleton wasn't walking with a limp. So who knows? Maybe we see him on the court. Jalen Clark, we know, will not be there because he has an Achilles injury. That's a big loss. He's one of their best defenders, if not the best defender. Also very important to that offense. Gonzaga is amazing on offense. Arguably the best offense in the nation. And UCLA is amazing on defense, so it's a strength-on-strength sort of battle. Gonzaga is 6-1 in games decided by five or fewer points. UCLA is 4-2 in games decided by five or fewer points. It is going to be extremely close, and I really want to pick UCLA because I love them so much going into the tournament, but I've got Gonzaga winning this one. Drew Timmy in this tournament, he's averaging 24.5 points, seven rebounds, shooting 59% from the field. And here's the thing. Even if Bona plays, he is only he only played 20 minutes in the last game. And the fact that it's a shoulder injury that he has. Timmy is a physical player who loves to bang in the post. If you're Bona and you've got to shoulder him up, you know that, that he's going to be feeling that. He might have to check out of the game when he doesn't want to. Or maybe he gets injured and he comes out of the game entirely. Or maybe he's so injured that he doesn't play at all. There's just not a good matchup for Timmy. The best player on maybe the nation's best offense. I'm going to give Gonzaga the nod here. I think they win by a couple of points. I would pick UCLA if they were fully healthy, like I said, but they're not, so I can't take them in this spot. Let's move on over into our B block of the show. We are looking at Mount Mitchell. Yes, Mount Mitchell, a self-titled segment on the self-titled show. Pretty narcissistic now that I think about it, isn't it? What Mount Mitchell is, is I'm going to give you the 10 teams 
that I think have the best chance to win the NBA Finals this season. And here's something interesting, and I'm sure you're going to pick up on a trend here. We're going to go from number 10 to number one, so reverse order. We're going to leave the best for last, build the anticipation. We are going to start with seven straight Western Conference teams, and we're going to finish with three straight Eastern Conference teams. Yes, I know. And I'll explain my rationale towards the end. Number 10, the Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors won the the NBA Finals last year. I am well aware of that. I know the pedigree they have. I know the experience they have. But here's the thing about the Warriors. They are 8-29 and on the road. There is nothing you can do to convince me that that is something that can be overlooked. And it's not like they've had problems when Steph hasn't played or when Draymond hasn't played or when Clay hasn't played. They've been 500 the entire year. They have a better record without Steph than they do with him. I'm not saying they're a better team without him, but I'm saying that proves to you that they have not played better with him in there. So why should I have more faith in them being just peachy when the playoffs roll around? They won a game on the road against the Houston Rockets. and Everybody said, oh, the streak is over. You know, they're saved. The Warriors are back. That was their first road win in 12 attempts. If you're going into the playoffs as a 5, 6, 7, 8 seed, which they are practically guaranteed to be, as long as there are no crazy upsets throughout the rest of the conference, you're going to be on the road four out of the seven games for the entire playoffs. So who cares if you have the third best home record? You have, the, you have the worst road record of any team that's going to make the playoffs. So you can win every game you play at home, which would be three games. And if you lose all the ones on the road, which is four, you lose the series. I just don't have faith in them. The, the younger players that they were depending on, Moses Moody can't even get on the court. Jonathan Kaminga, I'm not a huge fan of. I, I see the upside, I do, but I don't think he's a great player, and I, I don't think he's fully mentally there. I don't know if he's caught in this place if he doesn't want to interrupt the flow of his teammates or he just doesn't quite fit into the system. I think it's more of that. But whatever the case may be, Draymond Green, he's, he's not the player that he once was, and now he's not the leader he was because he punched his freaking teammate in the face. The player he punched, by the way, Jordan Poole, talk about a black hole. You give him the ball, that ball is going up if Steph and Clay aren't on the court. He's not a winning player. He has amazing talent. He has amazing highlights. When he gets hot, he gets hot as anybody in the league, including Stephen Clay. It's awesome to watch. But guess what? When he's not at his absolute best, he looks terrible a lot of the time. Steph scored 50 points the other night, and they lost by 10 points. What are you going to do with that? Warriors at number 10. Number 9, the Sacramento Kings. Kings are awesome. De'Aaron Fox has been the best fourth-quarter scorer in the NBA this season. They score a boatload of points more than anybody in the league, but they don't play defense. They haven't made the playoffs in 16 years and the players they have on their team are not playoff experienced. It's just too much to overcome from a mental standpoint. So could they make it to the second round? Yes. And would that be a victory for them? Yes, but they're only ninth in my list of NBA favorites. Number eight, the Los Angeles Clippers would absolutely be higher on this list. Had Paul George not just gotten injured. And honestly, If Paul George doesn't come back or if he does come back, I think it's going to be relatively similar in how it plays out. If he does come back, he's had so many injuries that I feel bad for him, and this one's a leg injury, so he's going to need time to both metaphorically and literally get his feet under him. As The playoffs aren't really the time to do that. That's not when you want to bring everything back together. Kawhi Leonard has been awesome over the past few months, but, well, 
I don't want to say but. I should say aside from that very questionable last-second shot in the game where he dribbled around in a circle for 15 seconds and then threw up one of the biggest bricks that you'll ever see. Like, you could build a Hollywood mansion with what he put up there. Even Westbrook was looking at him like, what the hell was that? Clippers, number eight. They've got everything you want in a championship team except their second-best player just got injured. That's a huge dud for them. Number seven, the Denver Nuggets. I know. They're the number one seed in the West. Just spare me, please. This team doesn't play defense. Nikola Jokic has not proven that he can perform in the playoffs. Michael Porter Jr. hasn't proven that he can stay healthy. Jamal Murray, as much as he raises his game, you can't win a championship if Jamal Murray is your second best player. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, really, I really am sorry. You just can't win. I said Jamal Murray is your second best player. You can't win a championship if Jamal Murray, who is your second best player, is playing at a level equal to that of your best player. And that's what's happened a lot of the time in the playoffs. Does anybody remember when Jamal Murray was scoring 50 points against the Jazz in the bubble? He always elevates his game in the playoffs. That's not that Jokic doesn't play great in the playoffs too. But again, I just can't see a world in which Jamal Murray has an argument for the best player on a championship team. And the Nuggets have been on a crazy downslide over the past couple of weeks. Jokic has fallen. He was minus 400 to win the MVP two weeks ago. Now he's plus, plus 300, plus 300, and then Giannis is plus 350, and Bede has taken over as the out-and-out -out favorite. It's crazy what's happened to those guys, and I have very little faith in them. Number six, the Lakers. The Lakers are one of the weirdest teams to predict right now because they're the 11th seed. They wouldn't even make the play-in if the playoffs start today. And I'm recording this on Wednesday, and they're playing the Phoenix Suns Wednesday night. They've got to win that game because they blew the opportunity against the Mavericks. They definitely blew it against the Rockets. This team should have been the sixth seed by now. Instead, they're the 11. And granted, there's not much room between those, so they can move up and down quickly. But if they get into the playoffs, which includes most likely winning their play-in game or games, you get LeBron back in there with the shooting they have, with the defense they have. I want to emphasize that. With the defense that they have, they are second in defensive rating since the All-Star break. Jared Vanderbilt, Anthony Davis, just a terror to try to get past. And I've got to give Darvin Ham some level of credit, even though I honestly still don't like it. But he's been insistent on playing these three-guard lineups, and Schroeder, Reeves, and Russell all on the court together has worked on offense, and it's worked on defense. Austin Reeves especially has taken a leap in his offensive and his offensive takeover, takeover-ness, his playmaking for himself and his teammates ever since LeBron went out. They have what you want. They have what you want for a championship team. I've got to be honest. A lot of that, of course, depends on LeBron coming back because if he doesn't, we've seen Anthony Davis completely take nights off, and they don't even have a hope of getting out of the second round if, if LeBron isn't back. Simple as that. Number five, the Memphis Grizzlies. Memphis has fallen out of – they've fallen out of the – the focal point for a lot of people looking at the NBA landscape. But get this, John Morant, off-court stuff aside, he was playing outstanding when he before he left. So whatever's going on in his personal life wasn't really affecting his play on the court. And he just had three weeks to get some rest, going into long playoff stretches. What happened in the last playoffs when the Grizzlies played the Warriors? It took him six games, but they had to do that without jaw. After the first couple of games, he couldn't play because he was injured. Ja is six foot three, 160 something pounds. 
And with how how much of a high flyer he is, every time he comes crashing to the court, you got to hold your breath. And I'm sure he had bumps and bruises that he was playing through. And, of course, he's missed some games too. So the fact you just gave him all that rest, he's already a young player. He doesn't need much. Those three weeks I think are going to be awesome for him and for this team. And this team loves Ja. And I don't want to say they go as Ja goes, but emotionally they, they respond to him. And Tyus Jones – they probably have the best backup point guard in the league. Tyus Jones deserves his flowers. He's been so good all season long, and especially when Ja has been out. But you put him back on the bench where he can shine in the second unit. How important is bench scoring in the playoffs? We know the answer to that question. The Grizzlies can be really good. Jaron Jackson is averaging 28 points over his last four games. This is a team that people don't want to see, especially if Steven Adams comes back. Do I think they're the favorites in the West? No, because the team that I do think – is the Phoenix Suns. It has to be Phoenix. Now, would I bet on Phoenix to make or win the finals? No chance in hell because Chris Paul always gets injured in the playoffs. Kevin Durant has had tons of injury problems ever since his Achilles tear. He's out right now, might not be back until the end of the regular season. Devin Booker missed over half of the year. He's not normally injury prone, but hey, after that one incident, is it possible there are some instabilities and some weaknesses? In his body, sure, maybe, who knows. Chris Paul, Devin Booker also have a history of choking. Devin Booker not as egregious as Paul, but hey, he was talking shit to Luka, and then we know what Luka did in Phoenix in Game 7 to those guys. DeAndre Ayton isn't playing, and he's been accused of having a low motor, especially in the playoffs, and I mean, we saw it in the NBA Finals against the Bucks. and also, again, that Mavericks game where Luka just torched them, so they don't have a bench either. A lot of problems for a team that has the best starting five in the West and has the most talent in the West, but can't really count on them. I really, really believe that one of the NBA champions or the NBA champion is going to be one of these Eastern Conference teams. And they start at number three with the Boston Celtics. They get it done on both ends of the court. Jason Tatum raises his play in the playoffs. He wasn't great in the NBA Finals. But in, he's had big games before. I remember him scoring 46 against Kevin Durant in the Nets. Really good player, really good team. The coaching, the rotation, some of that stuff, been a little questionable. They're only 10th in net rating since the All-Star break. So if you want to temper your expectations, go ahead. I'm not saying they're my favorite to win it all. But I do think that one of the winners, like I said, is going to come from the East. Or at least I have more faith in the East than I do in the West. Because there's so much randomness and variance in the West that it's almost hard to predict, whereas you know what you're going to get from these three teams in the East. Number two, the Philadelphia 76ers. Joel Embiid is going to win MVP. Since the All-Star break, this is off the top of my head, so it might be a little bit off, but he, if I remember right, he's averaging 35.5 points, 10.5 rebounds, over 2.5 blocks per game, and 4.2 assists per game while shooting 56% from the field, let's say, 56. It's 54, 55, 56, somewhere in there. He has been awesome. This team plays lots of defense. James Harden, I know he just had five points the other night, but he's having a great season, shooting a career-high in three-point percentage, been the best playmaker in the league, no doubt about it. He's not turning the ball over as much. Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris as your third and fourth options this team can do a lot now they also have their problems with choking Harden especially and beat a little bit and Doc Rivers definitely which is why the number one spot is reserved for the Milwaukee Bucks the best team in basketball in my opinion with the best player in basketball 
shouldn't just be in my opinion, should be in everybody's opinion. Look at his stats. He's giving you 30 and 11 or whatever it is, 30, 11 and five, whatever his numbers are. And he plays 32 minutes a night. When he starts playing 40 a night in the, in the playoffs, it, it's just over for a lot of teams out there. I have so much confidence in this team. Brooke Lopez is playing at a defensive player of the year level. Drew Holiday is one of the best perimeter defenders there are. Giannis, we know, is a defensive player of the year already. Those are, That gives you elite defense at multiple positions. Chris Milton finding a stroke off the bench. They've got great role players. They've got a coach who is an NBA champion. This is the team that I am looking at to win it all. And let's go back into some other teams that were unlucky to miss out. The Cleveland Cavaliers love their team. Guess what? You, you would have to beat one of the Celtics or the Sixers and then beat the Bucs. That's simply not going to happen. The Western Conference, some of the other teams that you could throw in the mix, the Mavericks, Luka and Kyrie are yet to mesh. And when they were playing together, they weren't winning. And now they're not playing because they both keep missing games. Um, any of the other teams in the play-in you want to throw in, like the Thunder, the Timberwolves, uh, it's just not going to happen, simply put. So that's that's Mount Mitchell. These are the teams that I think have the best chances to win the NBA Finals. And now, real quick, let's go, go on over to some NFL news. And we're going to keep this one short and snappy so we can get on out of here. Thank you all so much for tuning in, by the way. Really appreciate it. What is going on with Lamar Jackson Really no news is coming out as far as where he's going to go. Now, there are rumors that his mom is doing all the work behind this behind the scenes. She's pulling the strings. Listen, I don't care about the drama. I just want to know where Lamar is going to play. I think that teams are hesitant to sign a guy for such large amounts of money. Knowing that he runs a lot and knowing that he's been injured, those team, two things don't usually pair well. I will defend Lamar and say that he was really good at sliding early and getting out of bounds most of the time, but – still end up getting injured anyway. So, you know, it is what it is at that point. The whole reason he didn't come back to try to guarantee his money is also probably costing them some money. So real, real trade-off there, real risk-reward analysis that had to have been done. If I'm the Jets, though, I'm absolutely going after him. I think his age lines up with the timeline of where you're at a lot better than Aaron Rodgers. He would also be cheaper. He would be more dynamic. I think he could, could – um, maybe not demand the same respect from some of his teammates, but I think he could inspire them more just because of his style of play. I feel like it's more uplifting. It's more energizing. So I would be going after him, but Hey, what do I know? If he goes to the NFC, he will be the best quarterback in the NFC. I think that's something that he should keep in the back of the mind. And so here are some teams that I think should look to acquire him. However, they can the San Francisco 49ers. We know this team is desperate for a quarterback and they've been stockpiling quarterbacks, so you'd have to add another one. But Trey Lance, you don't quite know where you're going to get from him. He hadn't played his last year, really, and then there was the COVID year, and he didn't play as a rookie and all this stuff, and then he breaks his foot in the second season. So you, you, he hasn't played in a while. He's got a lot of ring rust. Jimmy G, we know, is not there. Brock Purdy is coming off a UCL tear, and he was Mr. Irrelevant. How good is he actually? Was he just a product of that San Francisco offense? Another team that I think could look into getting him is the, is the almost said, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Arizona Cardinals. Now, in order for that to happen, obviously you would have to get rid of Kyler Murray. But Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray, they're both running quarterbacks. 
Kyler Murray maybe throws a little bit better ball than Lamar, but I think Lamar has done more with his arm, honestly, than Kyler has. And we know Arizona wants to get off that contract. It's looking like one of the worst contracts in football. I think the Ravens are too smart to accept a trade for it because they know how bad the contract is, even if they are willing and wanting to part with the asset that is Lamar. So I don't quite know how you can make that happen. I don't know if you can make that happen, but I think it's one team that should at least kick the tires and, and evaluate what they can do. And then the Washington Commanders, uh, they're, they're just a dumpster fire of a franchise. Ron Rivera should not be in a job anymore. Dan Snyder's on his way out the door. Both of them should be fired for saying they're not interested in Lamar when they have Sam Howell. Just ridiculous in my opinion. No shade on Sam Howell. I think the kid has talent, and I'm higher on him than most people are. But this is Lamar Jackson. This is a, a unanimous MVP from just a couple of years ago. Saying you're not interested is wild to me. Adam Thielen says the Panthers can win the Super Bowl. News flash. No, they cannot. I don't care if they have the number one pick. And by the way, they sent 11 people, 11 scouts to go watch CJ Stroud throw the football. It's a safe bet. They're going to take him with the number one pick. One thing to think about going back to Lamar, would the Panthers be willing to trade the number one pick to get Lamar? I don't think they will, but would it be worth it? I think it definitely could be. I think it's something that should be at least talked about by those guys, but I don't expect that to happen. And then our last topic, our last headline Ezekiel Elliott released by the Cowboys. Now that is old news, but he hasn't signed anywhere. So I just theorized a couple of spots that I think would be good for him. And maybe this is boring. I apologize if it is, but I like how he fits with the Bills and the Chiefs. The Chiefs, Mahomes doesn't, Mahomes never runs the ball because he injured his knee on a quarterback sneak a couple of years ago. That's why you see Travis Kelsey getting in the wildcat formation, doing all these funky runs. They don't have a power back. Isaiah Pacheco runs hard, but he's still a bit of a smaller back. Ezekiel Elliott, he doesn't have the same burst. He doesn't have the same tenacity. Well, that's not true. He doesn't have the same burst when he runs, but he has the tenacity that he had when he first got into the league. There's still no player that's better in the league at picking up those last six inches or the last yard, the last foot, whatever you need, getting, over, getting past the first down marker. There's nobody better than Ezekiel Elliott in the league. So could the Chiefs get him on board and say, hey, we only need you to run for 40 or 50 yards a game, but we need you to get us third, first downs and third and shorts, fourth and shorts? I think it would be a great spot for him. And then the Bills, they're same same sort of thing. You know, We only need 50, 60 yards out of you per game, but we're just preserving Josh Allen because he's been the team's leading rusher for the past couple of seasons. And in those third and shorts, fourth and shorts, they're sneaking, they're quarterback powering, he's tucking and running on a pass play. There's so much wear and tear on his body that they need somebody to come in and be a bulldozer. I think Zeke would fit great there. And, of course, playing in the cold of Buffalo, he would be able to have that Derrick Henry effect of where he's just pounding people into submission. I think it would be a great spot for him. And I think this is a great spot for you guys because this is the end of the show. And I really, really do appreciate you guys sticking with me. I know that I took some time between the last episode. I think it's about nine days. And I apologize for that. I was caught up in the move. I had to get a lot of stuff sorted out. But I am back, and I'm back to posting weekly. I still didn't miss a week. Don't worry about that, even if it was more than seven days. We're still on the same calendar week, so we are good there. Really do appreciate you guys all tuning in. Drop a comment. Let me know who you're picking in the Sweet 16, and just give me feedback on the show in general. Look forward to taking it on board. And I look forward to seeing you all back for the next episode of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Thank you all so much. Have a great day.